You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and the clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days, anything of what they had said. Word of the Lord. Well, <clears throat> a couple of years ago when this whole COVID mess started, I remember seeing all these different regulations that started coming out from the state. And we would do, um, they called them clergy calls, and we would be on the call with the governor's office, and, um, and we would hear what we could and couldn't do, and sometimes it was recommendations. There were also quite a bit of um, regulations that were, that were spoken to us. And uh, I remember looking at it and, and um, ha- having some wonderings about it. I'll leave it at that. And, uh, and then um, finally, months into it, the uh, Supreme Court agreed with me. And I remember watching uh, with Ernest about this one case in particular. There were several others, but one in particular, the Supreme Court was going to rule on something and it was going to um, impact churches. Could the state tell the church certain things and when could they and things like that. And so I was watching it with interest and the decision came down and I emailed it to somebody who could tell me what the heck it meant and if it was good or bad. And, uh, and he basically said, this is good. And I said, great. And then we had, um, a f- we had one more, we'd had clergy calls, they called them, every, uh, about every four to five weeks, something like that. After that court case, we had one and it was about a year ago and it was, um, it was, I was actually, I remember, I've told some of you all this story, I was watching it on, on little, it was like WebEx or Zoom or something, we're watching it, and it has the number of people that are there, and the governor says, you know, you probably saw the court case, all these pastors, you probably saw the court case, and he said, so now everything going forward for churches will be optional. And you could see the number of people in the room just start to plummet right as soon as he, they were like, that's all I needed to hear, and then people jumped off. And so from that moment on, we haven't had any more of these calls uh, I stayed on just because they had some experts and they were going to share some stuff. I thought there might be some good information there, and so we got some of that. Um, but, but during that, I actually have a bit of a confession to make. That just because uh, the Supreme Court did what I, what I am glad they did, um, my question going into that was, was my hope in any way in these nine justices, or did it continue to remain in Jesus? Did I hope for some kind of outcome, or did my hope really translate? I began to hope 
in that these justices would do the thing that at least I wanted them to do? Where was my hope in that? And honestly, I I think it was in Christ, but I, I hope it remained in Christ fervently and that was it. But sometimes that can happen, that we can we can start to shift where our hope actually ultimately lies. And, and maybe this is something that some of you have ever placed a little too much hope and reliance in something, in the outcome of one election or, or uh, one boss, whoever gets the job to be your supervisor, or that one job offer, or one raise, or um, one promotion, or one sale, or one merger, one IPO, one relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, uh, spouse, something like that, that we can put so much hope in something else, and we have to go, hang on, am I hoping for something in that, or am I placing my hope in that? That Those are different. To hope for something, you have a hope for something, versus my hope is now in that. And I felt the pull to place my hope in the outcome of a court instead of to keep it in Jesus Christ and him alone. You might sometimes suffer from the same thing that I can suffer with, that pull that we have where we change it from hoping for something to hoping in something other than Christ. So I want to show you this morning from the transfiguration a very, very simple reminder of something, that Jesus is peerless. Jesus is peerless. There's nothing else, no person, no institution in the entire world that is worthy of our full hope and our full allegiance than Jesus Christ. There is nobody like him. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is peerless. He always has been and he always will be. Now, the story you just heard read about the transfiguration is what I've found as I've been talking with some of you this last couple weeks, that it is one of the stories that is most known and least known. Like, so many people know the story. They go up, it's Elijah and Moses, Peter, James, and John, and he gets transfigured, and then they, Peter shoots his mouth off again, big shocker, and then they go back down the hill. Oh, we, we know the story of the transfiguration. And if we were to go, well, what's it about? If, if you're wondering, or maybe you have some kind, of, some kind of understanding, please know that we are learning this thing together. This is one of the stories that I found myself in that boat of going, oh, I get to preach on this. This is one of the greatest stories. And if you were to go, what's it about? I could tell you all the data points. I could tell you they went up on a mountain. Peter shot his mouth off, that they went back down the mountain. But I didn't know if I really understood it to the depth that I do now. And I, I'm, I'm dying to share this with you. Let me show this to you. Um, And what we'll do is I want to show you through this that Jesus Christ is the peerless one. He's the only one that is worthy of having our full hope placed directly in him. That's it. And that's what this story shows. I'll I'll show you this. Um, If you remember where we are in Luke's gospel, there are identity questions that are coming up. The apostles are saying, uh, when they're out on 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 the boat and the storms obey Jesus, they are saying, who is this? that the wind and the waves obey him. Herod is hearing what's happening and they're going, and, uh, and he and his advisors are saying, uh, are saying, who is this about who I hear such things? We just talked a couple weeks ago about when they're in Caesarea Philippi and Jesus says, who, who do the people say I am? And they give an answer. He's, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? There's identity questions that keep coming up. If you got your your, uh, scripture journal and you want to write something, this is all about identity, what he's saying here. And so God is about to answer that question 
definitively. He's had all those questions about identity. Jesus has said to identify with me. You take up your cross, you follow me. And then it says in Luke 9, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him, Jesus took with him, Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. It it is probably, even for Coloradans, it is probably not near as possible to be in awe of the mountains as they were in their day. Like, th- think about how we are. Um, many of you have climbed 14ers. Uh, we have roads now that, leads, that lead up mountains. We've built machines that can transport, you know, helicopters and planes that can transport us over mountains and we can look down on the mountains. We have satellites in space that take pictures of them that if I want to know what at the top of a mountain, like topographically what it looks like, it takes my phone and my pointer finger and my thumb to zoom in to see what that mountain looks like. And yet we still, I know we look out at that and there is something like every time, I always forget that he raises the thing at the end of the service and I'm always go, I always love it. Like to see the mountains, to have that reminder of God. We have it a bit today, but in their day, think about how huge those were. They didn't have all those things that with the roads and the plains and all that. And so the mountains were where they are humbly on the ground and could look up and it was a hike. It was a trek to get up to those mountains. There were all, I mean, you, you know a little bit of the history anyway, that, that you know, warring nations would go in and take out villages and burn down forests and grass and um, kill animals and people and burn down homes and even stop up the water supply. But they couldn't level mountains. These are big, imposing things that created this sense of awe. We actually, we went skiing the other day, and, um, and while we were going up the thing, I said, Nick, Nicky, can you get out your phone and take a picture of the mountain? I know you know what mountains look like. We have the best picture right here. But we were going up the thing. Do you have that picture? We were heading up the lift. Did I give you the picture? There we go. This is, this is not in Israel. This is at Loveland. But... Um, <laughs> This is on the lift, and I know we have one right behind us, but I I just looked at that, and I had all this in mind to think about how would they have taken that, and I'm the guy, I like going skiing, and I just like being up at the top and just kind of going, and just got a little Texas in me still, I guess. I just like looking out and just seeing all those, and I, I don't know if I say it or mentally say it or not, but there's something in me that just goes, wow, wow. In their day, and especially like the Israelites' neighbors, if you think of what they did, all the pagan nations, they would go build, they would call it the high places. They would go up to the mountains because they kind of thought there's some awe associated with this, and they thought you get up higher and you're closer to the gods because it was, there was this mystery up there. They, they're not flying over them. It was, these mountains were these sacred, immovable, uh, relatively eternal, I guess, if you will, or timeless objects in the minds of people in that day. And so these mountains, like we talk about, like I still have friends that come out here and they talk about like this mountaintop experience. You know, we talk about just being here and being up and you just feel like this closeness to the Lord. But in their day, you had like um, uh, when Josiah came in and issued reforms for Israel, um, it, he reinstituted Passover, he restored the temple, and then it says he tore down the altars in the high places. Because the pagan nations had come in, think like Mount Olympus, like they think the gods live on these mountains. And so they would build these altars, and Israel was trying to function, but they left all these altars up, and Josiah said no. And they went and they tore them down. Mountains in the Old Testament are a place where divine revelation takes place. Powerful things happen. 
Abram goes up on the mountain to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Moses meets with the Lord, and the Lord tells him, he says, you're going to get the people out, and then you will worship me on this mountain. He goes up the mountain and comes down with the commandments, with the law. <clears throat> you have um, uh, Elijah has an encounter with God on a mountain. Elisha defeats uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You heard it read this morning, Psalm 99. You heard Paul read it. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. And so they slip away to go up this mountain to have this little prayer service. Now let me interject something here just by way of application. That you have, um, one of the things you note about Jesus' ministry is Jesus prays during the very, very difficult times in his life. He prays when there's something external that we would all go, ooh, we should pray. Okay, difficult things are happening. Then there's times like this, and then there's other times where it just says Jesus, Jesus just went and prayed. He went by himself, he went to a desolate place, and he just prayed. And if, if I think about the prayer life of a lot of Christians today, this is just, let's put a check out there for us. Um, do we pray when the world says something bad is happening or potentially could happen, that prompts me to pray? Or are we people that walk around and pray without ceasing? Are we praying constantly? That's the model of Jesus, is he is someone who just walked around and lived and walked and talked in prayer. It, if all we do, if all we do is we pray when things are really, really bad, then our prayer life will only be as good as our life is bad. Our life is telling us something is bad that prompts us to pray. Instead of just saying, you know, hey, rain or shine, I'm praying. I'm a person that walks in this posture of prayer. Let's not be the kids that call our parents just to get us out of a jam. I'm in trouble. I'm out of money. Can you put some money in my account? I need something. Something bad happened. Let's not be those kids to our Heavenly Father. Let's be people that are constantly talking to Him. So they go to this prayer meeting. It's not the, an ordinary prayer meeting. It says, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Listen to it in, the, in uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel. It says, His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. I like Mark's even better though. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That's what it says in Mark's gospel. Jesus is transfigured. He changes his figure. He's transformed. So we're reminded in this of Moses coming down from Sinai. His face was lit up. We have white and dazzling clothes. Clothing is often associated with messengers of God, heavenly messengers. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus being portrayed as a heavenly being. And given this context of Luke especially, we're seeing his divine qualities being shown here. And so the disciples had got to see some miracles, but they've seen his incarnate human form, and now they're going to get to see even more of the divinity in Christ. Look at verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, the two big names of the Old Testament, who appeared in glory and spoke, don't look ahead yet, up on the mountain, Peter, James, John, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah show up on the scene for some reason, and then they start to talk. So I have so many questions. Like, it doesn't tell us what Moses and Elijah look like. It doesn't tell us what they've been doing for like the last thousand years. 
Although one of the things it does do is it gives us great hope and it teaches something about the afterlife, that they have been gone for centuries, but very much alive, kept safe in the hands of God. What do you think they talked about? What would Moses have said? Maybe asking like this Seder meal, you know, like the, um, the connection between the Passover lamb and the blood of the lamb of God that would go to the cross. Jesus is right there, maybe that. Or maybe asked, how does your death relate to the sacrificial atonement that our priests would do in the Old Testament? Or um, Elijah was very much associated with the day of the Lord. Well, what is this? What is this the day of the Lord? Like, I would love to be there and hear the conversations. And you go, man, there's so much that they could talk about. And Peter, James, and John, I would just sit there and just take notes furiously. And it tells us, in fact, Luke's gospel is the only one that gives us the content of what they discussed. It says, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What did they talk about? They talked about his departure, what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is talking about the death, burial, resurrection, the ascension of Christ. This is, this is talking about the gospel message. This is talking about the one from the Old Testament that was promised is now here. That's what they stopped and talked about. In fact, you want a fun note. The word for departure is the Greek word exodus. So Moses and Jesus sat there and talked about the exodus. Moses has his little exodus where he went in as a representative of God and freed the people from slavery in Egypt. And what are they talking about now? That Jesus is going to go, he has something that he has to accomplish, and it is to go and free people from slavery and bondage to their sin, from the power of death. Jesus is going to go, and he is going to accomplish that. Moses knew that Jesus is about to bring about a greater exodus, a greater deliverance. And so when you have Moses and Elijah, don't don't miss this. Let me tell you what they represent. They represent the entire Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Moses was the hero of the exodus, the man who led Israel out of Egypt. He gave God's people the Ten Commandments, the law. And so Moses stood for the law. Elijah stood for the prophets. He was the greatest prophet. He raised the dead. He shut the rain up in heaven as judgment for Israel's sin. He prayed down fire to defeat the prophets of Baal. He didn't die. He was carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And God promised that one day Elijah would return as a foreshadowing of John the Baptist and what he did. And so you have Elijah and Moses, law and prophets. And in that day, many of you know this, but in that day, they would refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. So you get what's happening? The scriptures they have to that point, the law and the prophets, the Hebrew Old Testament, are standing there and saying, he is going to do, he he is the one that we have been waiting for. He is the one that is the fulfillment of the law. He's the one the prophets spoke of. It is the Old Testament standing there and saying, everything is coming together in Jesus Christ. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. It's probably in the evening. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Peter made a very unfortunate suggestion here, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the key is not knowing what he said. Or in English, we would say, 
Whoops. Peter gives Jesus a tip. You know what we should do? It's good that we're here. Let's build, let's build these three different tents, or literally tabernacles. And then he goes, whoops. But, but why? You know, that, that's the big question is why in the world is it bad to suggest that? Like, isn't that an okay thing? There's two basic problems with it. And here's the biggest one. It put Moses and Elijah on the same level with Jesus. Tent for you, tent for you, tent for you. You three are great. Let's all stay here together. It put him on the same level. Each, each one would get their own tabernacle, their own tent, as if he deserved the same honor and recognition as Jesus himself deserved. And Peter especially should have known better, because remember, like just a week earlier, um, who's everybody say I am? Oh, they all think you're one of the prophets, but I know you are the Christ, the son of the risen God. So Peter knew this, but all of a sudden what he's doing there is he's saying, hey, you guys are all great. Let's build tents for all of you and let's all be here together. and Let's stay here. Apparently, Peter still didn't understand the supreme greatness of Jesus Christ, that he is the peerless one, that the other great prophets are not on level terms with Jesus, that he's their savior and their God, and they must bow before him. Moses and Elijah aren't there to show that Jesus was one of the prophets, but that he is the unique, the one and only Christ. Peter missed the importance of the moment, that God is among them, that there are not three equals that are there. This reminds us Christ has no peers. When he spoke with Moses and Elijah, as great as those men were, he is not consulting with colleagues about something. So I think about this, you know, today when we think about where is our hope, I think about um, things that we might build a tent for. people that have really meant a lot to us, or, or there's other things we can do to subtly in our mind think that this person is maybe an equal or at least a peer of Christ. I jotted some ideas that came to mind for me, so pardon me, a little latitude here. Think about building a tent for George Washington as representative of our, our nation, meaning sometimes we overly inflate. My great hope is that our, is in our nation, that our nation turns around. Instead of hoping for our nation, we hope in our nation. We hope in Jesus Christ and him alone. Build a tent for whoever we're voting for in the next election. You build a tent for the Pope or some pastor whose books I've read that I really respect. And really what he's doing, the problem is we do not do that for any mere mortal on earth. No nation, no person, no leader, no man, no woman, no child. That Jesus Christ is the peerless one. That is the one, that's the message that Peter is getting as he's standing there today. Or one of the ones we can do too is have a little tent for Jesus and then have one for ourselves. And Jesus will hang out here like colleagues as though we should have a little back and forth about the wisdom of the world. And the reality is Jesus talks, we listen. The other thing about why it's a problem is, um, has to do with um, Peter really interfering with Christ's plan. Jesus is about, Peter says, let's stay up here, it's nice and safe. 
And Jesus is saying, I have to go to the cross. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to deliver people. I am going to go and die. And Peter still didn't get it. And so he's interfering with his plan of salvation. And so Peter still needs a greater understanding of who is this Jesus. And so God gives it to him. Watch this in verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came, and the cloud being the presence of God, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then God himself, this is the voice of God the Father speaking three things about Jesus. Listen to these. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. That's number two. Listen to him. My son, my chosen one, listen to him. The sonship of Jesus Christ refers to his kingship. In the Old Testament, they would talk about, um, you would hear David, you would see the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It's from Psalm chapter two. (coughs) So when God the Father calls Jesus his son, he is giving him a royal title, title testifying to his earthly, his kingly, excuse me, to his kingly authority. God glorified Jesus as his royal, eternal son. By saying, this is my son. Then he says, my chosen one. Jesus is the chosen one, it says. Title comes from the Old Testament. It's in Psalms. It's also in Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And we read in Isaiah, we discover that this servant, this chosen one will offer his life as a sacrifice for God's people. He'll be wounded for their transgressions, crushed for their iniquities, and make an offering for their sin, his body would, so they can be counted righteous before God. So by calling the son his servant, he's confirming everything Jesus said to his disciples about his suffering and death. Put it another way, God wanted to talk about the same thing that Moses and Elijah wanted to talk about. The salvation that Jesus would bring through his death on the cross as the suffering servant. This is my son, my chosen one. And then it says, listen to him. This is an echo from the Old Testament as well. God actually spoke something similar to this to Moses, but I'll just take it to say Jesus is the great prophet of the ancient promise. To listen to him is to hear the voice of God. And so in those three things, God the Father speaks and says he glorified Jesus as his royal and eternal son. Um, He's confirming that he will suffer and die for them, and he and he alone is able to do that. And he speaks the very words of God when he speaks. That's what the voice in the cloud is sharing. Focus on Jesus. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. And no one in those, and um, excuse me, and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. It says in Matthew's gospel, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise, have no fear. They just experienced Jesus being the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, the son of God, the true king, the Messiah, the anointed one from the kingly line of David. In the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah stood up and said, that's the guy. That's what they got to experience on that day. In fact, the word that you would use for the Old Testament to sum up what it's about is the word anticipation. The anticipation that the Messiah would one day come. And here's the Old Testament standing up and saying, he did come. Here he is, Jesus Christ is peerless. One commentator says it like this. It says, Jesus is God's royal and eternal son, the chosen servant of our salvation, 
the prophet who speaks the truth of God. It is no wonder then that he was transfigured in glory. The father was glorifying Jesus as the son of everlasting glory, as the king who rules us, as the savior who died for us, and as the prophet who teaches us everything we need to know for salvation. So I think about this and say, have I built any tents? Have I elevated myself, my own opinion, my own thoughts, my own goodness to the level of Christ? Do I have other people that I listen to Christ and I listen to them and they kind of carry the same weight? Am I hoping for something or am I hoping in something? Because the only thing that we hope in is Jesus Christ. Why is he peerless? Listen to this. Matthew's gospel says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. Now you and I read that our day and age, and we know, like that's not a shocker to you or anything, but imagine just walking down and Jesus just going, by the way, don't tell anybody until I've risen from the dead. Until you've done what now? Like imagine what that would be like to just hear that for the first time. The reason that Jesus is worthy of our honor, praise, glory, and respect, and nobody else is, anybody else you put in that tent, the reason he is, is because he is the one that started his love for us by sacrificing himself on our behalf. And that should move us to worship him and worship him alone. We just went last night, we went to watch the, um, the Colorado Mammoth, the indoor um, lacrosse team. We went and watched. It was actually a very exciting game. We know very little about lacrosse, but it's still fun to just go and watch. And we went and we, we watched the game. I got tickets, and, um, and I didn't realize this, but it was military appreciation night at the game. And we got to watch during um, halftime, we got to watch about 75 young people go out and give their, um, their oath that they would protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And they held up their hand and someone, you know, was, this woman was like leading them through it and everything. And, and um, they had, you know, the Air Force. They, when the mammoth player ran out at the beginning, he ran out and they said, accompanying him is so-and-so from the army. And he ran out with the flag and then the Navy and the Space Force. They had someone from the Space Force there as well running out. They had all the different branches. I'm sorry, I forgot yours, but all the different branches of the military running out, holding the flag and they would you know, high five the players and all that kind of stuff. They had their oaths that they took at, uh, at halftime. They had all throughout the game, they had these, um, these military people standing up and doing all the games and all that, you know, all that kind of, stuff. And there were multiple times where they would be talking about, in fact, this did, the first time this happened was um, they were introducing somebody, the hero of the game, and I, and I stood up and I just started clapping instinctively. And I, <coughs> excuse me, and I started getting teary as I'm watching. And I remember honestly thinking, oh, I should stand. And then I went, I am standing. Like it was involuntary that we just stood out of respect and applauded. And as they were taking their oath, or I, I think that's the right term, excuse me if it's not, but their oath at halftime, I was there and I was doing this most of the time. I didn't know a single person that was out there. But why is it that it moves us so much? Because we look and go, they don't even know me. And they're willing to go and take the chance at dying on my behalf. That's moving. That's stirring. And here we are with Jesus Christ who came to earth and knew he was going to have to die. People like you, people like me.
That should move us. That should stir us to say, Jesus, we worship you and we worship you alone. You are peerless and there is none like you. The words that came to mind for me, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure.